station that allows our station to serve everyone in the community. Go to WJFFradio.org to make your donation now. It's WJFFradio.org. You can also give us a call at 845-482-4141. Thank you again uh, to listener Anthony and to Anonymous in Jeffersonville. So far, we've raised $70 towards this uh, this $250 challenge. It means we have $180 left to go in the next 30 minutes. Help us make this challenge. Call now as we head into the local edition, 845-482-4141. Eight four five four eight two four one four one. This is WJFF Jeffersonville W two three three AH Monticello. And welcome to the local edition. News and information keeping you connected. In the Catskills in Northeast Pennsylvania. I'm your host, Jason Dole. Coming up, we'll be talking about the latest new work at the Catskill Art Space. Matt Nolan joins us talking about the space between. And we're also going to check back in with our generous challenger, Marty Nealon, from the Catskills Tiny House Workshop. Learn more about tiny houses. But first up, it's time for our regular check-in with Delaware Currents, a news project that tells the story of the Delaware River starting from its origin in the Catskill Mountains of New York and flowing all the way down to Delaware Bay. Founder and publisher Meg McGuire spoke to Radio Catskill's Patricio Rabio earlier about how someone stole 120 mature trees in the upper Delaware. This is news here that we're breaking on Radio Catskill from Delaware Currents. Here's what Meg McGuire had to say. The property, I, I don't know if it encompasses all of the Mitchell Pond Brook, but the brook clearly goes through the property. It's about 23 acres, and it's been kept pretty much in a pristine forested condition. And when Helen Bichelle went up in, on Easter in 2019, thinking that she was just going to go for a nice little walk in the woods, that's when she discovered that the, that the problem had happened. And when I first heard about the story, I thought it was like a clear-cutting thing, but it's not. It's a precise plucking, if you can call a huge tree plucking, but it's a precise cutting of mature, high-grade hardwoods. In this case, there was 120 re- trees removed from this 23 acres, and most of the trees were high-quality furniture-grade ash, white oak, and hardwood. And uh, most of them, 50 to 75 years old. So quite a treasure for her property. But also, one of the things that interested me about this story is those trees were a treasure for the river because forested land like this and like the lands that are close to hers are a perfect way for a rain to percolate through the soil and get to the river as clean and clear as you could possibly want. The problem with this theft is that not only are the trees gone and the shelter they give uh, critters and all of that stuff, they their roots keep the soil in place. And once those trees are gone, then that soil is not kept in place nearly so much and is likely to get washed away in rain. 
So you end up having a deterioration of the quality of that stream, and that stream leads directly into the Delaware River. It's a sort of a one thing on top of another that, that, that happened here. The event happened in 2019, or I should say uh, the property owner discovered it in 2019. And then it took a while to unthread what had happened. Mm. Apparently, nearby property owners had hired a logger to come in and do this type of precise logging on their properties. But anyone, um, he went over the property line and did it on her property too. Although it's, it is not clear yet whether it was intentional or accidental. But the property is signposted. And one of the other things that horrified the landowner, the way the, the ownership of the property went from Thomas Raleigh owned the property, loved the property. He gave it to his niece with the request that she conserve it. The niece developed the relationship with the Delaware Highlands Conservancy. Actually, Thomas had developed that, but she carried it forward and gave the land to the Delaware Highlands Conservancy for conservation. And usually what the Delaware Highlands Conservancy does if they're given land is that they, they in turn sell it so that they would have the money to continue their work, but the conservation easement stays intact. And that's exactly how the property owner came by this property. So the Delaware Highlands Conservancy was clearly involved in estimating what the damage was and also in part of Helen's pursuit of legal action. And at this stage, the action is a criminal case against the logger, and his case is still being processed in the town of Bechtel. His name is Richard Callahan of Livingston Manor. He's been, he was charged with felony grand larceny and misdemeanor timber theft. His case remained open, but then what there, there was a civil case then against the nearby property owners because it was the property, uh, Helen Bexel's uh, contention, that those property owners were not careful enough with this harvesting that went on their land. Right. And if they had hired a forester, for example, property lines would have been more properly recognized. But as far as we, as far as our work uh, investigation into this, it seems that the most of the cases against the adjoining property owners have been uh, dismissed, but it's also possible that some of that related to the settlement, which is how we found out about it. Delaware Highlands Conservancy released a, a press statement back in September um, to say that a settlement had been reached. So it may very well be that um, some sort of satisfaction was reached. But, of course, part of the problem here is you can't replace that many trees that right. are that old quickly. And in order to replace them where in, in exact, the exact spots where they were, you're going to have more disruption of the soil as they bring in the various equipment that you need in order to plant those trees. So it has it has quite an impact on that little patch of land. And it could, and the other thing that one of the things that's problematic here of course is as as this empty place in the forest, of course nature abhors a vacuum. And so other things come in their place and one of the things that come in its place are things called hay scented ferns. Hmm. Um, uh, which I have 
if I look out my window. They're called hay-scented ferns because they turn slightly yellow and brown, and when they turn slightly yellow and brown in the fall, that's when they start smelling like hay. But unfortunately, when they get on the property, nothing else can grow. And then you have, of course, the super predator of young trees up in the forest is deer. It's really problematic how those trees could possibly be replaced and how they could flourish. Yeah, you're talking about trees that are 50, 75 years old. It's a lifetime. And you mentioned also the destruction of the soil. There was destruction of the soil from removing the trees. And now you're talking about more just to replace the trees. The equipment right. there just right. to, we live in the Sullivan Casco, so the, the ground is not the most pleasant. If those are any, trying to do any kind of gardening or digging into the ground, that you can run into a lot of rocks there. It's Absolutely. a long process. I, mean, um, I think uh, um, she mentioned that they might take, that might need an auger um, in order to drill the holes in the rocky soil. Trees get established in their own place and time, and this whole swath of forest um, um, regenerates itself because of how forests grow. But when you take pieces of the forest out, then it's really hard to reconstruct that puzzle. From what I understand, moving up here from the city, I find out that thinking the forest was here hundreds and hundreds of years. But the, we have relatively new forests in, in our Sullivan Castles because of the history of locking in our area. Right, right. Wherever you have stands of, or wherever you had stands of trees a hundred years or so ago and more, there was a lot of logging. Because, of course, wood was so valuable for building and also for burning for heat. There there certainly was a lot of logging back then, and I think probably back then some of them was done. Some of it was done wisely, and some of it was not. So I'm sure there was um, instances of clear-cutting. One of the things that I thought was interesting is once we started looking into it, um, one of the people we spoke to um, from the DEC was saying that this was more common a, a while back, but that now... It is less common. So it's good to hear that it is less common, but it's unfortunate that it had to happen at all. Yeah, unfortunately. So it, it will take decades for it to go back to what it was and not yeah. only the trees, but also like the environment. So you mentioned again, it doesn't happen as often as it was before. So th- this was a common occurrence that people are finding their trees illegally taken. Because what happens in a lot of cases, if you, especially, like, first of all, if you have a lot of property, you don't necessarily visit every square foot of it all the time. But in but in many cases, of course, some of the properties in Sullivan and other places in the Upper River are owned by people who are – they I might live in New York, and the place that they have in Sullivan is a place to get some respite from the city. And it can happen while the owner is actually absent. And sometimes it can happen, and it's it could be a long time before the owner finds out that it has happened. So that's, as far as I know, I don't know how much before 2019 when she discovered it, how much before that the logging actually happened. It it feels like it was maybe a couple of years, but I don't know the exact date. And it's often the, the situation ends up being unreported because there is no person to point the finger at. If you've not been up on your property for a couple of years and or not been into sections of your property from a couple of for a couple of years and you walk through it and you see this devastation, you're not gonna know who to blame. The case here is interesting because of course she knew about the logging that was done on adjacent properties and it does seem as if this logger just went onto her property even though it was posted and did the same thing on her property that he 
was hired to do on adjacent properties. It was a little more in the recent past. A bit more could be done about it. This is such an interesting story that has happened right here in the backwoods of Southern County. And like you said in your article, that is still ongoing. Has there been a settlement? The settlement was announced in September, but the case against the actual logger is, according to the court, is still open. Right. Meg, before we go, is there anything else that we have not touched on you want folks to know about this story? Not so much this story, but I just wanted to point out that the partial drawdown of the aqueduct Mm -hmm. at the New York City DEP is happening as of today. There's a three-week partial drawdown so they can start to see exactly how much uh, pumping they're going to need in order to make the uh, aqueduct safe for people to work in. They discovered they did a drawdown two weeks ago for two weeks, like in the early spring, I think. And what they discovered was there was a lot more water coming into the tunnel from the cracks than they expected. Mm. So now they're doing a longer drawdown so that they can see exactly how much uh, water is coming in so they can figure out how much pumping they'll need before they do the big drawdown next next fall. And this is the beginning of the Delaware Aqueduct Repairs. It seems like we've been talking about this for such a long time, and it's actually happening. At this point, it is still planned for 2024, but it depends on, in some ways, how much they might find from inundation of water as they do this partial drawdown, how much equipment they're going to need to get down there in order to pump everything out. Although certainly it's planned for fall of 2024, it's there's a lot of complicated factors that sort of will go into making that actually happen in 2024. We definitely have to wait and see what happens. We're talking to Meg McGuire, the founder and publisher of Delaware Currents, talking about a timber theft that happened in the upper Delaware and also the ongoing repairs on the Delaware aqueduct. Thank you so much, Meg, for joining us on the program. For Radio Catskill, I'm Patricio Rabayo. Thank you, Patricio, and thank you, Meg, for that report. Yeah. And thank you for listening, listener, during the local edition. We're just pausing the program for one moment to remind you that we need your support. It's our fall fun drive. Make your donation right now, 845-482-4141. Call 845-482-4141 to donate over the phone. Go to WJFFradio.org and do it because we have a $250 challenge. $250 challenge. We have just $180 left to go. We've got 15 minutes left to do it. Let's get a few phone calls now. And by let's, I mean you. I need you to call and then maybe a couple other folks will call and we'll have made this. And once we raise $250, once we raise another $180 and add that to the $70 we have already raised, Marty Nealon will give us another $250 from the Catskills Tiny House Workshop, and he's in the studio with us once again here. Marty, once again, it's been great having you here talking about tiny houses. Thank you. And uh, reminding folks that you do have a workshop coming up this weekend, and there's information uh, at your uh, website, CatskillsTinyHouseWorkshop.com. We were talking about the different houses that you had there, and you mentioned that um, that when you're, when there's a workshop, people stay in the houses. And then in between the workshops, you you can actually rent them out. And you actually uh, advise people on renting out their tiny houses if they get one? Yes. Um, when we uh, The third class of the workshop uh, addresses where you can live in these houses legally, which is, is tricky because the 
uh, I didn't know as much about this when I started as I now do. The the laws vary from municipality to municipality. Um, people are invited to uh, to stay in the houses during the workshop. They're also we usually don't tell them this until they show up. But if they ever want to come back with their their boyfriend or their kid. Uh, and spend the night with them so they can show their partner or their family member what they're thinking about doing and do a test, a test drive with them. Uh, any, any attendee of the workshop gets kind of a lifetime free pass to come back and enjoy the houses. I got off track there a bit. We, we do, um, cover, uh, renting these houses. If you're, if you're building one, not because, uh, you're seeking a full-time residence, but because you're seeking a vacation home or an investment for your own property, the, the Airbnb route is covered in great detail during the workshop. And, uh, to, to speak to that, I was a little nervous when I put the cabin up for rent the first time I did, because it's geographically, it's so close to my own house. It's only 15 yards away. And New Yorkers are famously, uh, pushy people. I was a little worried that you know, they were going to undermine my weekends. Were you going to be in your house all the time looking for a cup yeah, of sugar co- or something? Complaining yeah. about all sorts of things. And <laughs> j- speaking of sugar, Jason, I know this sounds a little sugary, but I have, and I was not expecting this. I've had the opposite experience. The people that come up for the weekend, whether they're coming from Philly or from, uh, from Albany or the city, they're in such a good mood to be in the country that their, their ha- happiness is, is very palpable. You, you, when I walk past them on the way to my car and I see them sitting on the porch sipping wine or uh, just talking and enjoying the view in the, in the mountain air, it's, it makes you like your own place even more. So the, the Airbnb thing, you don't get rich off it, but it's a, it's a nice modest second stream of income. And it's also a very pleasant experience meeting these different people, some of whom, and this is another thing I wasn't expecting. I've, I've stayed in touch with them and become friends with some of the guests and they, and they, and they come back and it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's been a very joyful experience. Great. Uh, could you, uh, I'm curious because you do advise people. I mean, could you just give us a couple of the, the pluses and the minuses, meaning the advantages of a tiny home and then perhaps some of the, uh, a few of the notable challenges that perhaps people don't expect when they get interested in this. Sure. Well, one of the challenges, um, and we we do we do raise it with people so they'll consider it before they sit down to design their houses. Um, while there's an obvious connection between a, a city apartment and a, and a small house in terms of size, uh, there are, there are substantive differences. Small houses are generally lived in in, in rural areas, and um, this meaning that this the studio or the or the one one bedroom that works so well for you in Brooklyn may not work as well when you're living at the end of a dirt road up here in Sullivan County, and you spend quite a bit of time at home uh, in in rural America more time I think than than you do in the city, and because there isn't a, a, a cafe or a bookstore just just down the stairs or down the street when you're living up here it's it's imperative I think that people build their house in such a way that it provides the required change of scenery a house should. It shouldn't, it shouldn't simply be one big room, um, which can work when it's that big room is a studio in, in Cobble Hill. But I, it's not, I don't think it's as likely to work when it's a, a, a tiny house in, in Livingston Manor. You, you need a little more space, as simple as that sounds. And to construct the house in such a way that um, you're, you're harnessing just about every cubic foot of the house and, and designing it in such a way that you make an inherently small space feel bigger. Th- that's something, that's one, um, lesson, if you will, that I think is very clear to people when they, 
when they come to the workshop because they're staying in their houses and they see how these ha- houses are, are a marriage of crowded yet functional spaces with larger comparatively empty ones. Um, and there's a, a tiny bit of psychology to to designing your small house. And that, and that can be very rewarding, putting in um, narrow doorways, rotating ceilings, steps up and steps down so that by the time you get from to the kitchen from your computer, even though you've only traveled maybe 10 feet as the crow flies, you, you, you've gone through a number of different zones and, and had to turn your body in a number of ways mm. so that it, it feels bigger. We do a little tiny house exercise about halfway through the building class. And uh, it's, I, I do, I can see people's eyes opening um, when we, when we, um, when we have that part of the class in, in a good way. I can, I think, I mean, I'm not sure what's going on in their mind, but I think they're uh, saying, Hey, you know what? I'd like to like to apply that in my house. Well, there's more to there's more to tiny houses. There's more to learn about tiny houses. You can fit into a tiny house, or we could fit into a segment here on the local edition. We're gonna have to move on right now, but I will remind folks again that uh, we're talking to Marty Nealon from Cats from the Catskills Tiny House Workshop website is Catskills Tiny House Workshop. Com. There is a workshop coming up this weekend. Marty, thanks again for being here with us. It's been great. Thanks for having me, Jason. And uh, again, Marty uh, brought a challenge. We've got now nine minutes left for this challenge. If you can help us out, we'll get another $250. We're just $180 away from making this challenge. 845-482-4141. Call now. Make your donation at 845-482-4141. Or just go to WJFFRadio.org and make your donation there. Moving on, on the local edition, we have one more story for you tonight, and uh, it's Catskill Art Space's latest new work from artists Nancy Davidson and Matt Nolan. The exhibition opens Saturday in the ground floor of the galleries of Catskill Art Space Livingston Manor and runs through November 25th. And Matt Nolan's The Space Between Ceramic Figures Occupy Liminal Spaces. Valerie Mancy spoke to Matt Nolan recently. Hello, Matt, and welcome to Radio Chatskill. Thank you so much, Valerie. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. I am very curious about the space between. I read an excerpt about your upcoming show that will be running from October 21st to November 25th, and I was curious about the space between. The space between is um, a theme that... I'm sure has resonated with all of us during the pandemic where we were much more conscious of distances, literally distances between others and, and isolation and finding enough space. And so that sort of found its way into what I've been thinking about in my work. And so the sculptures I've created um, in various ways address issues of spatial relationships. And what type of sculptures are they? I primarily work with ceramic materials and ceramic process, and the current work is all porcelain clay that I I build hollow porcelain forms that are very sculptural, although they reference vessels. Um, they're not really utilitarian for the most part. They're really meant to be viewed like sculpture is. You know, I'm a storyteller, so they often embody in various ways different types of narrative. 
you have a number of different series in your portfolio. Can you talk about some of those? Sure. You know, over the years, I've been working um, as an artist professionally since 1986 or so. And all of that time, of course, there have been it's there have been many themes, many ways it's been, many forms it's taken. But, you know, in previous bodies of work, I've, I've been much more interested in stories that are more about political and social kinds of concerns that we all sh- might share. And it really shifted several years ago now to stories that were more oriented with personal stories that sort of started with inside my own sort of internal psyche, if you will. But all of them are really an attempt for me to connect myself to the greater world and to share ideas and to, you know, in some ways connect outside of my own process and my own studio life. I noticed in viewing your work, as a matter of fact, I did see an earlier show of yours uh, back I guess, in 2016 at the Delaware Valley Arts Alliance. And I remembered it being very colorful and interesting and a number of variety of forms. Yes. I think um, in some ways I've been really interested in figuration and the figure, although some pieces move fairly abstracted, but they the forms in some way reference the human figure. And so that might be a common thread, but there's definitely a lot of color, a lot of texture, a lot of very ornate, sometimes surfaces on the ceramic pieces. So there's a lot of information. You think that's just how my brain works. There's just a lot going on simultaneously. And it's no one would ever accuse me of, be, of being a minimalist. That's for I, sure. I will agree with that 100%. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, I would never <laughs> accuse you of being a minimalist. Yes, there there is a lot to engage with in mm-hmm. every particular piece of work. Yes. You know, I think... I have made some progress um, over the years in the sense of uh, moving the work. You know, it has been so densely loaded with information that it can be hard to get into almost. It's almost too much. But I really have um, thought a lot about areas of the work where it's maybe a little quieter so that something that's more dense could come forward and be, you know, consumed, if you will, by a viewer. So I I do work at that because I really, as I said before, I really do care that some of the things I'm thinking about or the ideas that I care about in the work are shared with an audience. So I really do want to do my part to make sure nothing is in the way or less is in the way from someone being able to connect to the to the work. And I was also curious about something else. You are you were a visiting artist in Jerusalem for a while, and yeah. on the same, what was that? Okay, yes, I was invited to be a guest or visiting artist at the Bet Salel Art Academy in Jerusalem, and this was in 2019 just before the pandemic really began. 
And um, it was a wonderful experience. They gave me a workspace, and I had some interactions with their students. But I was really primarily there just to do my work. And I was, I, they gave me an apartment um, right outside the, um, walled, the old walled city of Jerusalem. So it was a very exciting thing. But my experience there, one, um, one, one of the most you know, revelatory aspects of being there was the neighborhood where I was living was um, right on the edge, uh, as they call it, the seam between a Palestinian neighborhood and uh, a Jewish neighborhood. That It was really like a highway or a road, but it that seam could be very, very charged with tension because of what was happening politically between these two groups. When I was there, it was very peaceful, and that scene was very porous, and so people from either neighborhood were just getting along and going, you know, it was just like, you know, crossing a road. So it started me, I started really thinking about scenes, borders, um, the spaces between that experience, and so that's continued to be a theme in my sculpture as well. So let's review again so folks will know when and where this event is happening. I'll repeat, the the opening will be on October 21st, and it runs from 3 to 5 p.m., and it will include an artist talk. The show runs from the 21st through the 25th, and it, there will be another artist, Nancy Davidson, who I also will be interviewing. So it's a full-packed day, uh, the Catskill Art Society. And Matt, I want to wish you good luck at this event. Thank you so much. It was such a uh, pleasure speaking with you today. Thanks very much. All right. Well, thank you, Valerie, for that report. Well, that's going to do it for the local edition. I've been your host, Jason Dole. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you to all our guests. Thank you to Marty Nealon for being here. And thank you to everybody that's supporting us during our fall fun drive. Be the next one. Help us out. Give what you can. Make your donation now. Go to WJFFradio.org or call 845 845- 482-4141, 845-482-4141. This is Radio Catskill, and it's time.